What's stopping you from becoming a Catholic? Why can't women become priests? 1-833-288-EWTN. I don't understand why I have to earn salvation. 1-833-288-3986. Why do I need to confess my sins to a priest? What's stopping you? This is Call to Communion with Dr. David Anders on the EWTN Global Catholic Radio Network. Hey everybody, welcome again to Call to Communion here on EWTN. It's the program for our non-Catholic brothers and sisters. Is that you? Are you a Methodist? Um, You know, there's a, a big chunk of our family up in Ohio that we visited last week. They are Bible Methodists. So they have a lot of questions about the Catholic faith. Maybe you do it as well. Here's our phone number to get those questions answered. 833-288-EWTN. That's 833-288-3986. If you're listening to us in Kuwait, well, you need to dial 1 and then 205-271-2985. And you can always send us an email. We'll get to one of those in a moment. CTC at EWTN.com is the address. CTC at EWTN.com. Charles Beery is our producer. Matt Kabinsky is our phone screener. Jeff, Jeff, listen to me. All right, uh, Rich Jesse is our uh, social media guy. If you have a question uh, that you would like to post via YouTube or Facebook, well, uh, all you have to do is put that question in the comments box. Rich will see that, and he will uh, shoot it to us here in Studio One. Hopefully we can answer it on today's program. Again, the phone number for just about everybody in the good old USA 833-288-EWTN. I'm Tom Price, along with Dr. David Anders. Tom, how are you today? Very well. How are you, sir? Oh, fine and dandy. Thank you. Great question here from Russell's mom, listening to us on Veritas Catholic Radio in Connecticut. Who is Russell? Russell is her son. She says, my son came home from CD yesterday. He's eight years old. He was clearly upset by something. Eventually, he came around and shares that everybody laughs at the dumb questions that he asks. He seemed to warm up a little further when I added that his questions were actually pretty contemplative and philosophical, especially for an eight-year-old. I did my best to answer what he was asking. However, I'd really appreciate sharing how Dr. Anders would explain these in some detail to an inquiring third grader. The questions were as follows. Number one, why does the death of Jesus stop time for the world? For example, why not when the dinosaurs died out? And why does it just restart and then bring us to 2024? Question two, how do we know that people who wrote the Bible were all telling the truth and not just exaggerating things? How do you know they're not just stories or partly true? Sometimes you know people just make things up. As always, so thankful for your show. God bless Russell's mom listening in Connecticut. And by the way, her name is Karen. Okay, let, let me get that first one about stopping time one more time because yeah. I'm not quite sure I grasped that. Let me hear it again. Why does the death of Jesus just stop time for the world? For example, why not when the dinosaurs died out? And why does it just restart and bring us to 2024? I guess the dividing line between B.C. and A.D., I guess. Okay, uh, that was going in a totally different direction. So, I'm I, again, I'm not quite sure I understand what he's asking. Uh, it, it, that, if it's just a matter of the calendar, then that's easy. Because I think that's it. We, you know, we, we, we date the modern calendar from the, from the, the life of Christ— because he fundamentally changed all of human history. 
And so it makes sense to start the calendar over at, at, at the life of Christ because this is the beginning of the new world that he brought about. Okay. Um, the, uh, uh, how do we know that the Bible is not just stories or that at least some of it isn't just stories? Well, first of all, some of it is just stories. Some of it is just stories, emphatically so, but that doesn't devalue it. It's not, it's not of less value to us, to us if some of it is just stories. Now, some of it is just history, but some of it is just stories. Uh, for example, Jesus taught people using just stories. In fact, when Jesus preached to the multitudes, the, the, the Gospel of Mark tells us that he never said anything without using a parable, which is to say, just a story. But what was the point of the stories that he told? Well, the point of the parables was to awaken his audience to spiritual truths, not just like some fact about themselves or their life, but a, but a kind of deep interior realization that mm-hmm. they needed God's grace, that they maybe weren't as good as they thought they were. Things like the parable of the Good Samaritan, for example. If you're a priest in, in first century uh, Judah listening to Jesus tell this parable, you've probably been thinking of yourself as one of the good guys. Now Jesus tells a perfectly plausible story, one that you you probably could imagine happening, maybe one that you've seen happen or something analogous, and he's drawn your attention to the fact that in that story you're not one of the good guys, and suddenly you recognize, okay, maybe I'm maybe I'm not as okay spiritually as I thought I was. The story has a purpose. The purpose is to create a kind of spiritual effect in the mind of the listener. Whether or not there was an historical good Samaritan is irrelevant to that. Now, Jesus is historical. The story of the Good Samaritan isn't, but the historical person of Jesus used a fictional story to evoke a moral change in his audience. And there are other portions of the Bible that work the same way. Take, for example, the Psalms. There's, there's no question of historicity in the narrative of the Psalms. They're poems. They're, they're, they're songs of praise and lament and, 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 uh, and, and joy and, 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 uh, uh, and sorrow. Uh, that express the spiritual aspirations and longings and sufferings of the human heart. Uh, And we identify with them rather than simply treating them as questions of, well, is this something that happened or didn't happen? It's the wrong way to think about the nature of the literature. So, so yeah, the Bible's a more complex, nuanced book than that. Uh, But uh, more to the point, I'd like to address this business of kids laughing at him for asking questions. They're idiots, (laughs) <laughs> They're idiots, okay? And and one of the marks of a great mind is to ask questions that everybody thinks they already know the answer to and and to force them to really articulate what they think and why and to defend it. I mean, the, the father of modern philosophy is Socrates. His whole approach was to walk around asking people patently obvious questions that everybody thought they knew the answers to and pointing out to them that they weren't nearly as smart as they thought they were, uh, right? Yeah. And 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 mockery and ridicule is always the way the hoi polloi, the man in the street, the proud, treats honest inquiry because he doesn't want to expose himself to scrutiny. Yeah. Well, Karen, a.k.a. or alias uh, Russell's mom, that's a great email, and please uh, give our best to and, Russell. And forget they called Thomas Aquinas the dumb ox. That's true. Yeah. Who got the last laugh there? Hey, lines are open for you right now at 833-288-EWTN. Call now 833-288-3986 for call to communion.
call to communion on this Tuesday afternoon here on EWTN. Our phone number 833-288-EWTN. If you have a question for Dr. David Anders, 833-288-3986. You know, you can journey deeper in your understanding of the Eucharistic ministry and understand the Eucharistic story of God's love for us from the Old Testament to the institution of the Eucharist. Download the free ebook, The Twelve Stations of the Most Holy Eucharist, by going to EWTN.com slash Catholicism. That's EWTN.com slash Catholicism. There is so there is a wealth of wonderful information and resources on our website that are absolutely free to you. So do do check that out, EWTN.com slash Catholicism. If you're ready now, let's go to the phones at 833-288-EWTN. Here is Pat in Louisiana, listening on the great Christ Our King radio. Hey there, Pat, what's on your mind today? Um, I'd like to just um, do a comment and then ask a question. I'm a religious ed teacher. I teach second grade, and I just want to let... Dr. Anders know how much he has helped me in my class. I had a child last year ask me, um, in the Glory Be, it says world without end, but in the Bible I read, well, the world will end. So, uh, you know, what is the, what's going on there? And because of Dr. Anders' explanation, I was able to give him a more cogent answer. And also this year I had a student ask, why do I have to tell my sins to the priest? Can't I tell, just tell God I'm sorry and he'll forgive me? And again, because of Ms. Dr. Anders' um, explanation, I was able to give him, you know, a more cogent answer. So I really feel he's helped me in in my ministry. Thank you, Pat. And I want to thank. Thank you. Did you have a question, Pat? Also, in addition. Yes, in the Stations of the Cross, uh, Jesus meets Mary on the road, and then Jesus is taken down to the cross and put into the arms of Mary, and we have the Pieta and all of that. But in Scripture, I don't see anything that actually says that. Um, it says uh, when, as the, when he, Jesus meets Mary on the cross, the, the Bible reading or verse is usually when Jesus meets the women on the road to, up to Calvary. You know, and I was just wondering, is this tradition? I mean, it would be reasonable, I guess, to assume he would have met Mary, but... Yeah, thanks. About Appreciate it. Uh, uh, several of the stations of the cross are not mentioned explicitly in Scripture, uh, specifically station 3, um, 6, 7, and 9. Uh, the, the, the following the first, second, third time, meaning Veronica, they're not in the Bible. And so these are uh, these are uh, pious stories that, that come from the Catholic imagination, and they're not necessarily grounded in history. Um, but they are worthy objects of, of, uh, of, of pious reflection and devotion because they the purpose is to evoke uh, love and charity and, 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 and pity and concern and mercy and, and contrition in the heart of the Catholic faithful, and that's, that's their function, that's what they do, and they do it effectively. Pat, thanks so much for your call and for your kind words about the show. We do appreciate hearing from you today in Louisiana. And that opens up a line for you right now at 833-288-EWTN. Two lines to be exact about it, 833-288-3986, for call to communion on this Tuesday afternoon here on EWTN Radio. Let's go to Billy now, driving through Michigan, listening on the great Good Shepherd Radio. Hey, Billy, what's on your mind today, sir? I was wondering why... The Catholics have to go through so much trouble to make a person a saint. When we're saved, we are saints. Yeah, thanks. I really appreciate the question. 
So uh, we need to disambiguate. I, I love that word that Wikipedia has given us. It's a great right? word. We great need to disam- disambiguate a couple different senses, both of the word saint and of the word, the word saved. Okay. So uh, the Scripture uses the word saint to refer to those people who have been set apart by their faith in Christ and baptism, those in the church, as distinct from the people in the world. And in that sense, we can speak in a broad sense of, uh, of all the baptized, of all believers as saints, and that's the sense in which you're using the term. That's, that's correct. But there is a specialized use of the term um, that is— uh, it's not unique to Catholicism, but it's characteristic of Catholicism. We talk about the saints as people who have become perfected in the life of holiness. And that's not something that's automatic just upon coming to faith and baptism and repentance. In fact, exhorting the people of God to continually purify themselves of their immoderate attachments and to grow in love and the knowledge of God until they reach perfection, uh, that's that's a theme that's re- that recurs throughout the Bible. And, and in, in Catholic theology— uh, there's a special sense of the word saint we use when we apply to those kinds of people, people who have uh, really been perfected in holiness uh, and uh, of whom we are certain that they are in heaven after they die. Uh, you know, we're not really sure about anybody. You don't know about the, the state of their inner life, whatever, whatever they may profess. Um, but uh, when somebody is assuredly in heaven, there's a, a third sense in which we use the term saint to refer to those people. They're, they're ones that are definitely in heaven and sure. have been proved by, by many tests and, 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 uh, and so forth that they're, they're absolutely there. And the reason that the church sets aside some people and says, we're going to recognize these people as saints in that third sense, those that we, we know with certainty that they're in heaven, uh, two reasons. Um, one is that Therefore, their lives can be emulated. And so, like, not everybody that is a Christian lives an admirable life, a life worthy of imitation. Some people shipwreck their faith and do all kinds of nasty things. But those who live lives of exceeding holiness and charity and are assuredly in heaven are models of Christian behavior for the rest of us. And so we can hold them in front of our imagination and and uh, and follow their example. St. Paul once said, follow me as I follow Christ. And we need those human examples. Ultimately, we follow the example of Jesus, but since we're not the Son of God and, you know, or first-century carpenters or messiahs, it can sometimes be difficult to put myself exactly in Jesus' historical perspective and point of view. Sure. Whereas, let's say I'm an attorney, um, might be easier for me to relate to the holiness of a Thomas More, who is in fact, was in fact an attorney who, who gave his life and martyrdom for his faith, and say, okay, well, that's, that's what holiness looks like, you know, if you're practicing law. Or here's what holiness might look like, you know, if you're a carpenter. Here's what holiness might look like if you're a doctor. Or here's holiness, what holiness might look for, like if you're, say, a father of a family or the mother of a family. And so by, by, by holding up specific examples of Christianity and, and holiness in a particular state of life, the Church makes it easier for us to come to holiness ourselves. The other reason that we specify some people as saints in that third sense, not the sense in which you're using the word, I'm using it in a different sense, um, is because Catholics believe that those who are in heaven pray for those who are on earth, and they do so very effectively. Excuse me, very effectively. St. James says the prayer of a righteous man is very effective, but not everybody's prayer is equally effective. And so if we know that somebody is perfected in holiness— then their, their prayers are even more effective, and we do well to ask for their prayers and intercessions. All right, so that's part one of my answer. Here's part two. It has to do with the way we use the word saved. And I, I think probably 
when you're using the word saved, you're referring to a concrete moment in time in a person's own biography when they came to know Christ and invited him into their life and asked forgiveness for their sins from God. And that person says, well, I'm saved. You know, and Commonly, evangelists might ask, brother, are you saved? And that's what they mean. Okay? A lot of times when people use that language, they also include this belief, the idea that a person who is saved in that sense knows for sure that they'll go to heaven when they die. You know, once you've invited Jesus into your life and received forgiveness of sins, that's your get-out-of-hell-free card, and you, you, your, your eternity is assured at that point. That understanding of salvation is not actually scriptural, it's not biblical, and it's certainly not Catholic. And so there's a sense in which you can speak about the saved, those who are being saved, as those who have faith and repentance and forgiveness of sins, but more strictly, Jesus says, it is only those who persevere to the end who will be saved. That's Matthew 24. And so in that sense, I don't know that I'm saved today. I know that I know Christ. I know that I have faith and hopefully contrition for my sins. But I won't know that I'm saved in the fullest sense of the term until I'm in heaven, until I've persevered to the end. And so uh, that's really the sense of saved and the sense of sanctity that is marked out, that's singled out by the Catholic practice of canonization. There you go. And that's a lot of information to lay out for you there today. Uh, however, we do recommend that you uh, check out the podcast uh, whenever you get a minute. Uh, Charles will have that posted for you in a couple of hours. Here's where you go, EWTN.com slash radio. Once you're on the radio homepage, then uh, click on the words Podcast Central. Then you'll find all of our shows in alphabetical order. Scroll down a little bit, look for Call to Communion, and you'll hear the, uh, the question that you asked along with Dr. Andrew's answer. Thanks so much uh, for your call today. It's Call to Communion here on EWTN. Our phone number, 833-288-EWTN. That's 833-288-3986. Tom is driving through Wisconsin listening on Sirius XM, Channel 130. Tom, what's on your mind today? Yeah, my question is on the on the Holy Eucharist. Uh, for instance, when Jesus said someplace in the Bible, uh, it, unless you eat my body and drink my blood... You don't have life within you. And there was a bunch of disciples had, a, had trouble with that statement, and they walked away. And instead of, instead of uh, soft-selling soft that and saying, well, I didn't really mean it that way, when I read in the Bible, Jesus, said, Jesus doubled down and said to the apostles, are you going to leave also? And my my so my, my question is, it's kind of a two point thing. How did the how did the Christians after at the from the time of Christ going forward, how did they practice the Holy Eucharist? Was that was that was that oral tradition, or was there things written down describing sure. The, sure. the practice the practice a practice of of, of uh, receiving the Holy Communion and then the other part how did the Protestants go go away from that when that is written that way in the Bible and it it, it seems like it's more symbolic to the to the Protestants. Yep. Yep. I can I can answer both those questions and I really appreciate it. So uh, you referred, you referred to a passage from the Gospel of John, chapter 6, where Jesus talks about the realism of his presence in the Holy Eucharist and the necessity of eating his flesh and drinking his blood to have life. 
Keep in mind that the Gospel of John, most scholars think, was probably written someplace around the 90s of the first century, 90 AD, thereabouts. But Jesus died, rose again, you know, around 30 or 33 AD. That means that there was a good 60 years that transpired when the church was worshiping, the church was celebrating the sacraments, especially the Eucharist, uh, without any written documents, at least not this written document. And so I point that out because the church's understanding of the liturgy precedes the Gospel of John. John reflects an earlier tradition, right? The tradition comes first, the biblical text comes later. And so when the communities that received John's Gospel received it, Jesus actually doesn't ever explicitly mention the Eucharist in that passage. The reason that we know he's talking about the Eucharist is, well, it's we we already know there's an antecedent tradition of eating and drinking the flesh and, and the blood of Jesus. And so we relate the text automatically to what we already know about the, the liturgy. You see, there's a there's an understanding that bread and wine are understood to be body and blood in the antecedent tradition. Then you have the Gospel of John that comes by and places that in a very poetic way, but a very forceful way. Uh, And so I point that out because there's always been a continuous tradition within the Church from the time of Christ of treating the elements of of the sacrament with extraordinary reverence, of affirming about them that there is a substantial change in their nature at the moment of the consecration, and of identifying the sacred species with the body and blood of Jesus themselves. And all of that precedes the Gospel of John, is reflected in the Gospel of John, and of course is is echoed in the writings of the earliest fathers of the Church. So uh, again, in the very early 2nd century, this is one of the earliest post-biblical texts that we have on the nature of the Eucharist, in the letters of Ignatius of Antioch, the third bishop of Antioch after St. Peter, um, he, he censures, he rebukes those, who don't believe that the Eucharist is the actual body of Jesus. Um, In uh, the mid-2nd century, about, say, 165, Justin the Martyr, Justin the Apologist and Philosopher, writes uh, his first apology, uh, his defense of the Christian faith to the Roman emperor. And around chapter 66, I think, of that text, he describes the worship of the Christians, and he says, we, when he describes the Holy Eucharist, he says, we don't receive this as ordinary bread and wine, but believe by a miraculous change that it actually becomes the body and blood of Jesus. And we find that teaching again and again and again and again. It is ubiquitous in, in, uh, in the writings of the fathers, in the liturgy of the Church, and in the practice of Christians. It's only those who are, say, docetists who deny that Jesus Christ had a real body, or Gnostics who deny that God even made the world, you know, radical sects outside the Christian church that would deny the doctrine of the real presence. That's what led Martin Luther, the first Protestant, to conclude so emphatically that Jesus was truly and really present in the Blessed Sacrament. And, you know, you you characterize Protestantism, but it's important to remember that our Lutheran brothers and sisters insist very, very strongly on the doctrine of the real presence of Christ in the Eucharist. And, and Luther once wrote that even if we had no Scripture, that, that the witness of the entire Christian faith and tradition down for 1,500 years to his day would be sufficient to uphold that dogma of the faith and that one would foolishly reject it. So when Ulrich Zwingli, who was a Protestant that rejected the doctrine of the real presence, 
sought to make common cause with Martin Luther. Luther would have nothing to do with Zwingli and considered him a heretic because he rejected this fundamental dogma of the mm. faith. The other major wing of the Protestant tradition, uh, Calvinism, John Calvin, um, though he had a view different from Luther's, continued to affirm the substantial presence of Christ in the Blessed Sacrament in the Holy Eucharist, although he conceived of that in a very novel way. So we can, we can talk about, after the break, where did the idea come from that Jesus was only symbolically present in the elements. Sit tight, Tom. We'll continue on the other side. We'll also talk with Ann in Bay City, Michigan, and hopefully you as well at 833-288-EWTN. It's called Communion in Progress here on EWTN. Our phone number, 833-288-EWTN. Not too late for you to call 833-288-3986. Before the break, we were talking with Tom, driving hopefully very carefully through Wisconsin. Uh, A couple of questions there regarding Holy Communion. Yeah, thanks. So before the break, we we talked about the doctrine of the real presence of Christ in the Eucharist. Um, it's, uh, it's, it's dominical, that is to say, coming from the Lord and apostolic foundations. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's uh, it's uh, the evidence for it in the sacred scripture, as well as very early sacred tradition. And the continued belief in the Lord's in the real presence, even by Protestant theologians like Luther and, to a certain extent, John Calvin. But uh, Tom had another question as well, which is, if this doctrine is so well attested in scripture and sacred tradition, how did it come about that Protestant theologians uh, rejected it. Some of them, like Zwingli, rejected it. And the story there is is interesting and complicated, but uh, part of it has to do with the relationship of the laity to the liturgy and to the clergy that emerged in the high and late Middle Ages. So one thing that all historians of Christianity agree on is that there was a pervasive... Uh, a deep-seated anti-clericalism that came to grip the popular imagination, or at least some of it, uh, in the late Middle Ages. Anti-clericalism is, you know, it's a form of prejudice against the clergy. And uh, and some of that was well-deserved. There were corrupt and incompetent clergy, and 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 the, the nature of the canon law was such that clergy were held further apart from the laity than they are today, so much so that, say, from the 12th century on, uh, there were cl- clergymen could be uh, could be tried in clerical courts for civil crimes and exempt from exempt from civil courts. They had privileges, in other words, that uh, many other people considered to be unfair and uh, and and very often undeserved. And so that that could provoke a lot of jealousy and bitterness and frustration in the part of the laity, and, yeah. it, and it did so. Okay, um, that's well attested. Uh, but uh, also the the nature of the celebration of the liturgy was such that. Most of the work, as it were, was carried on by the clergy, and often in a manner that was unintelligible to the laity, because not only was it in Latin, which not all the laity spoke, but architecturally even, it would be separated from from the nave of the church, sometimes by a rude screen, um, such so that uh, the only part of the liturgy that the laity could really grasp, as it were, would be the moment of the elevation. Uh, the veneration of the Blessed Sacrament when, when it was elevated, but much of the rest of it would be sort of left shrouded in mystery, um, a kind of a, a kind of discipline of the secret, if you will, and that that encouraged a the development of a distinctly lay spirituality um, over and against the liturgical spirituality of the church, and this is again quite well attested 
one of the John Bossy, historian of medieval Christianity, contends that the most characteristic form of late medieval, medieval piety was the confraternity. This is the this is the Catholic small group, if you will. Okay, okay. We, right. we beat the Protestants to the small group game, <laughs> and there's nothing wrong with confraternities. We still have them, but there was an explosion of confraternities in the late Middle Ages, often around some devotional practice, um, and and they they could at times develop into a kind of counter liturgy. And so you will find accounts of, uh, of confraternities where they did, in fact, develop their own lay liturgies. Um, they had sort of quasi-clergy. You know, they would have lay leaders that might be vested in a certain manner. Huh. And they began to develop rites and symbols that would evoke uh, spiritual truths, things like, you know, the, the, the commonality of the Christian people as the people of God, you know, the body of Christ— and interestingly, one of the traditions that developed in that extra-liturgical piety was the tradition of blessed bread. Not consecrated hosts, but normal bread, common bread that had been blessed by a priest and used by the laity not as, a, not as the reality of Christ's body and blood given to them in Holy Communion, but merely as a symbol of their commonality as, as one loaf, one body in Christ. And so they, you actually have Catholic non-liturgy liturgies using bread blessed by a priest to symbolize the commonality of the Christian people as the corporate body of Christ, distinctly specifying that it's not the consecrated species. Wow. Right? You have the development of the, of the, of the devotion of spiritual communion, right? Uh, and uh, uh, this kind of thing. And then by the late 15th and early 16th century, you combine that extra-liturgical piety with a deep anti-clericalism, and you begin to find, even within Catholic circles, the idea that, well, communion and the consecrated body of Christ is all well and good, but our, but our, but our symbolic solidarity as the people of God and the union with Jesus that we have in our souls is far more important. And so a kind of denigrating of the Blessed Sacrament in comparison to these extra-liturgical forms of piety, right? All of that is in evidence before even the, the, the Protestant Reformation, particularly in Holland and some places in France. Mm. And so it wasn't a stretch for someone like Ulrich Zwingli, who then added to that picture that I've just described uh, a deep fascination with uh, with a kind of dualistic Neoplatonist philosophy, a kind of Renaissance Neoplatonism that degraded the material, and to find, even within the resources of some of the more divergent, you know, late medieval traditions, uh, a kind of uh, intellectual patrimony that made something like the merely symbolic presence of Christ in the Eucharist into a, into a conceivable option. Hmm. Um, now, all of those trends were recognized by Catholic theologians at the time and viewed you know, with more or less criticism, depending on how far or how close they were to the heart of the Church. Uh-huh. Right. Th- this kind of thing is one of the reasons why reform was not Luther's invention. There were plenty of Catholic theologians who recognized some of the theological and devotional dynamics of the time and said, you know, we need to clean this mess up and, and really specify the teaching of the Church and get the lay people re-engaged in the liturgy to prevent these schismatic tendencies. Now, they didn't act fast enough, and, and you know, Luther kind of beat them to the punch on that, but the Council of Trent was a reforming, not just a reactionary, but it was a reforming council that meant to address some of the same kind of abuses that Luther himself either uh, either fomented or, or responded to. Tom, is that helpful for you, sir? 
yes, it, yes, it is very much so. Um, it's just it's amazing to me. I, the reason I brought the question up, my brother, my, my wife and I have been born and raised Catholic. My brother and his wife were born born and raised Catholic, but they're fallen away Catholics. And we got into some, we got into the Eucharist and some other topics recently, and they just don't back down, you know. And, and I and I and they're very Bible only. And I said, well, okay, if you're Bible only. Why don't you believe this part of the Bible? Or do you just have, you know, you have the blinders on for the parts of the Bible that you don't like? And that's what's brought on this. Well, most Protestants don't know the story that I just told about the development of their own tradition. That Very few of them recognize, and I'm going to say this just like it sounds, the Catholic origins of the Protestant Reformation. Wow. Right. And, and there, there's, there are books by that title, and Brad Gregory at Notre Dame is someone who's written on this a bit as well. But, uh, yeah, a lot of the prehistory of the Protestant Reformation you, you find within 14th and 15th century Catholicism. Protestants today don't know that history. They think that their own beliefs just emerge fully formed from the pages of Scripture. But, of course, that's a very naive way to look at it, because if that were true, yeah. then anybody who had a Bible would just arrive at Lutheranism, and, of course, that's historically not the case. And we've been doing this show, what, eight years now? This is yeah. the first I'm hearing of, of some of this material. Um, so, yeah. Well, ha- really? Yeah. Okay. All right. Well, yeah, okay. yeah. I mean, the, the, the quasi, quasi-Eucharist. So, I see, mean, I, what I did my doctoral dissertation on years ago was John Calvin's critique of lay piety, not mm-hmm. just Catholic piety, but yeah. Protestant lay piety. Uh-huh. And I found that there's this, there was a real kind of... Uh, uh, division between kind of the official theology of the church, whether Protestant or Catholic, and then what the average the average Christian man on the street, Protestant or Catholic, believed. And uh, this this uh, and I, I really explored that, so this became an area of interest of mine. And the way that I got interested in the topic was I, when I was writing my master's thesis on a guy named Pierre Viret. He was a Protestant theologian. He was uh, he was exhorting his congregation to the power and the beauty of the Word of God. And then, kind of as a tangent, he said, "No, by the way, don't wear it; read it." And I went, what is he talking about? And it suddenly struck me that he was he was warning his his parishioners against the superstition of thinking that if they just took Bible verses and pinned them in their clothing, that that was a sufficient form of veneration, mm, yeah. right? And I and that, it was the first time it ever occurred to me that you could have a theologian or a preacher in a pulpit preaching one message, and his congregation hearing something very different. Mm, yeah. You know, and I thought that's that's a fascinating social dynamic. I want to explore that. So that's what I did my dissertation on. Fascinating. Tom, thanks so much uh, for your call today. Again, because we laid out a lot of information for you, check out the podcast by going to EWTN.com forward slash radio. Here is Anne now very patiently waiting for us in Bay City, Michigan, listening on Ave Maria Radio. Anne, what's on your mind today? I would like to ask Dr. Anders, uh, I know he's a convert, and how did he get so knowledgeable? Where did he go to college? Theology school? He He's talked about stuff I never heard of. And if, I would venture to say there are some priests uh, out there that don't know as much as he does about the Catholic faith. I'm I'm just amazed how much he knows. Well, I um, I know my own little corner of the world. You know, I, <laughs> I, I don't know a lot about a lot of things. I was talking to an accountant friend of mine the other day. He says, "Yeah, just how do you answer all those questions on the Catholic faith?" I said, "How do you answer all those questions on the tax code?" We're, yeah, you're expert in your domain. The difference is you get paid a lot more per hour than I do. <laughs> you know, so you you know you spend your life in one area, you learn that stuff. Sure. But I started studying theology 
like formally started studying theology in 1991 uh, at a Protestant school at Wheaton College in Wheaton, Illinois. And I did my degree there, and then I went on and got a master's degree at Trinity Evangelical Divinity School, another Protestant school in Deerfield, Illinois. And then I did a Ph.D. in theology or religious studies at uh, the University of Iowa, uh, graduated in 2002. And so I did I did 13 years of, of uh, hardcore theological study before I became Catholic, and I've been Catholic 20 years, and I've been doing this gig uh, in Catholic media on and off in one form or another since since uh, 2010. Yeah. So, uh, you know, it's like I said, it's just what I've spent my life doing and uh, don't know how to change the oil in my car, to be honest with you. <laughs> you know, I'm, I'm, I'm terrible at drywall, but I know one or two things about the Bible. And thanks so much for your call from Bay City. It's called to communion here on EWTN. You know, you can hear the Holy Sacrifice of the Mass every two hours on EWTN Radio Essentials, plus rosaries, chaplets, stations of the cross, and other devotionals every hour. You can hear EWTN Radio Essentials a couple of places here on the EWTN app, also by going online to EWTN.com. All right, back to the phones right now. Here is Dale, a first-time caller from Columbus, listening on the great St. Gabriel Radio. Dale, what's on your mind today, sir? Uh, Good afternoon. Thank you, gentlemen, for all the work that you do. My question that has really been bothering me for the last year, after having converted 30 years ago, is why, uh, with uh, 12, 13 apostles following Jesus, why were virtually all of them martyred or murdered? Only one died a natural death. Uh, were I to design a business plan, uh, it seems like a, a very poor business plan. I cannot wrap my mind around having all the apostles uh, martyred. Yeah, what a fascinating question. I really deeply appreciate it. I'm going to enjoy this one. So... I'm going to start someplace outside of Scripture in the Christian faith, because that's what came to my mind. The other day I was reading Xenophon's memorabilia. Xenophon was an ancient Greek writer who recorded the, the lives and deeds of the earliest philosophers. And I was reading his account of uh, Socrates. It's different from Plato's account. And in this particular passage, there was a fellow who came up to Socrates and asked him the very same thing. It was like, Socrates, why would I ever want to get on board with your philosophy? Because, you know, you don't wear shoes, and you've had the same toga on for like the last 20 years. And, you know, you, you're, you're, you have a pathetic house, and, you know, you don't have a, you know, you don't have a three-car garage, as it were, you know, of the, whatever the ancient Greek equivalent was. And Probably didn't smell too good either. Don't smell, don't smell too good, you know. And, and so he's kind of going through all the things about Socrates' apparently miserable and rather, you know, rather uh, uh, pitiable life. And, and Socrates' response was basically, well, you know, you, you need shoes— to walk on rough terrain, but I've trained my feet to be comfortable anywhere. Um, you know, you need a comfortable bed to lie down on and, and, uh, and, you know, in soft clothing and so forth, and I'm content with what I have. You need sumptuous meals to satisfy your ravenous appetite, and I'm rather accustomed to just, you know, bread and water and a few olives. Um, in, in other words, very little disturbs me, and you are the princess with the pea. You know, you're, Ooh, you're, yeah. you, you, you can't be happy unless you have every little creature comfort tailored to your every whim. And I'm typically happy in just about any circumstance. And moreover, says Socrates, the way I view the divinity is that the divinity needs nothing. So the more I can, I can uh, sort of rid myself of, 
of creature comforts and human need uh, and still be satisfied the closer I am to the divinity. And that was the pagan Socrates. And I, I think you know, many people in many cultures outside of even the Christian faith have recognized that a life that's lived entirely for hedonistic self-indulgence is a base and despicable life and, and what isn't one that really tends to happiness. Pleasure and happiness are far from the same uh, quality and that you know the, the, the one is kind of base and despicable when indulged in with the kind of abandoned and the other uh, is uh, is quite desirable and within and so very, that that same ethic that valuing of what the ancients called apatheia or dispassion is part of the christian tradition as well but with this added benefit we are dispassionate not simply to rid ourselves of of uh, of immoderate desire but so that we can then turn all of our human capacities our dignity our rationality and our fortitude to the service of our neighbor in love Right, that if you don't have need of very much, if you kind of despise creature comforts, then you're able to just do a lot more good in the world after the model of Christ, right? Who, of course, came not to do his own will, uh, and that included, you know, not necessarily seeking the three car garage and, and, you know, the promotion to full partner and whatever else he could aspire after, but to do the will of his Father, which ultimately, of course, was to reconcile the world to God. Uh, by his own death by martyrdom. And he called his disciples to do likewise, to take up their crosses and follow him, because the ultimate value of human existence is not measured by creature comforts or hedonistic pleasure or long life even, but by the love of God and neighbor. Dale, a great question. Thanks so much for your call today from Columbus. We do appreciate hearing from you. Call to communion here on EWTN. Uh, We have a question here from English Gal. Hey, English gal, she's watching us on YouTube this afternoon. English gal says, why do we have to pray for the church suffering, that is, purgatory? Aren't they in God's hands? Yeah, thanks. I appreciate the question. Well, you could apply the same question to any prayer. You could say, well, you know, why do I have to pray for my living friends? Aren't they in God's hand? Why do I have to pray that God's kingdom comes? Isn't it going to come whether I want it to or not? Uh, why do I have to pray for my daily bread? Doesn't doesn't Jesus say that uh, that uh, you know not a sparrow falls apart from the will of his father? What is that Protestant hymn? His eye is on the sparrow. Yes. You know, um, if that's all true, then why bother praying at all? Why not just kick back and be utterly passive, and uh, and uh, que sera sera and trust it will be good because God's in control. And there is actually a spirituality, it's a heretical one, it's one condemned by the church called quietism that takes exactly that point of view. It says, it says, you know, because God's in control, we ought to just be utterly spiritually passive and take no initiative because, hey, he's in control, he's going to do with us what he's going to do. And uh, church says, no, that's, that quietism is the wrong attitude to take towards prayer and towards Christian life. And the reason why is that, yeah, God's in control, and, and he wants our salvation. But what that looks like is precisely that God engages us in the, in, the, in the activism of our very own will, right? That we become agents that desire the good and pursue it in imitation of him. And, and that means that we desire good for and from our neighbors. That, that, the, that the, 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 the end of human, of Christian charity, is a kind of union in love with everyone, with God and with our neighbor. And the way we live that out in practice is first and foremost by mutual prayer and intercession. And, and like, God doesn't need us for anything, right? God, I mean, he doesn't need us. Right. He, he condescends to let us be partners in uh, the work of history and in the work of redemption to dignify us. Hmm. 
so that we could be like sons. Fascinating. English gal, thanks for watching us today on YouTube. Appreciate hearing from, from you From American dudes. Yeah, a couple of American guys. Here's an interesting question that came in uh, via email uh, just about two hours ago from Michael. Dear Dr. Anders, I have a friend who reads uh, Koine Greek. I would like to get him a Greek Bible. Ideally, I'd like it to have both Old and New Testaments and with the Deuterocanonical books. So far, I haven't been able to find one that fits these criterion. Do you know of one that you can re recommend? Thanks, Michael. Yeah, generally, uh, when you get Greek Bibles, you, you don't get the whole Bible under one cover, oh, generally really? speaking. Okay. What, you, what you will do, at least uh, around here, is you'll find a, typically a critical edition of the New Testament, like Westcott and Hort or the Nestle Alon critical edition of the New Testament. Uh -huh. Then you can also acquire, generally, the Septuagint version of the Bible, which is the Greek translation of the Bible, um, of the Old Testament, and get that published under a separate cover. Now, um, I... Uh, if I if I wanted to get Genesis to Revelation all in Greek, um, then honestly, where I would probably go is I would start looking at some Greek Orthodox presses. Oh, really? Right, because I mean the, the the official, as it were, translation of the of the text of the Bible for the Greek Orthodox community would be the Septuagint and the Koine version, mm -hmm. and I I. I imagine that there's probably some Orthodox press someplace that, that publishes all under one cover. But generally speaking, over here, you would have to get the Old Testament under one cover and the New Testament under one cover. All right. Michael, thanks so much for your question. Nancy in Fort Worth writes to us, Hello, Dr. Anders. I'm interested to know if the new Fiducia Supplicans document is an ex-cathedral or infallible teaching or a magisterial teaching. Are they the same thing? If not, what's the difference? If the document is either, then what is it categorized as far as authority is concerned? I think she means neither. Thanks for your wonderful program, Nancy in Fort Worth. Yeah, thanks. Not infallible, not infallible teaching. Okay. Um, and and in one sense, it's not even teaching as such. It's more like a kind of a, a granting of a permission. Right? Ah. It's a prudential judgment about the, the way that priests should go about, you know, particular kind of blessing to certain kind of populations. Uh -huh. And uh, and and so, in terms of the theological content, it would it would <clears throat> fall within the church's ordinary magisterium, uh -huh. uh, which is the ordinary uh, teaching office of the pope and his curia. Uh, and as such, is uh, uh, one owes anything that comes out of the Holy See what we call a religious submission of mind and will, uh, but not the ascent of faith, right? Not the ascent of faith. So what's religious submission of mind and will? Let me give you a concrete example from the life of a Catholic parish. Um, let's say that, uh, you know, Father gets up to preach a homily on Sunday morning. I'm not going to stand up at Mass and yell, that's rubbish! <laughs> right? Even if I think it's rubbish, uh -huh. and it might be rubbish, right? I'm not going to stand up at the back of the church and yell, that's rubbish, while Father's preaching his homily. I'm going to sit there respectfully, let him do his thing, let the Mass finish. Mm -hmm. And then I might go to Father afterwards, if I'm friends with Father and he trusts uh -huh. my judgment, I might go, good heavens, Father, what on earth were you thinking? You were really out in left field during that homily, but yeah. here's why, and here's how, and here's what I think you ought to do about it. And then he's the priest, I'm not. And he could either say, you know, gosh, Anders, that's a really good point. I'm going to remember that next time, and I might, I might even issue a retraction the next time I get in the pulpit. Or he might say, Anders, go soak your head. You don't know what you're talking about. I'm the priest, you're not. And that would be his discretion. Sure, sure. Religious submission of mind and will means 
he's the priest, I'm not. I recognize his right to teach and not mine. He has a kind of official capacity that I lack, but doesn't mean that I have to take everything lying down. And, and sometimes it means that I, in a, in a respectful manner and given my position and status in the church and in a way that doesn't bring scandal, I may even, or someone who's qualified, might even uh, suggest a correction to the, whoever the, the authority is. All that is consistent with religious submission of mind and will and the ordinary teaching authority of the church. Very good. Here's a quick question from Connor in Toledo. Connor, are you uh, with us? What's your question? We just have a couple of minutes left here. Okay, sure. I'll make this quick. Um, so my question is is about um, like various like Old Testament figures like David or Abraham or any of the prophets, for example. Um, they're described as having a very close friendship with God and a close relationship with Him. And my, I believe in Isaiah it says that Abraham, you know, he's called a friend of God. My question is, is that these men were presumably still in a state of original sin, had not yet nope. had that. Nope, humid. nope, nope, wrong. Not pres- and that's not the presumption. I'm sorry to cut you off. We're running out of time. Uh, they had sanctifying grace, just like we do. Okay. Uh, Moses absolutely had sanctifying grace. He's Saint Moses, um, Saint Elijah, Saint Elisha, Saint Abraham, yeah, Saint Isaiah, and and there's some rites of the Catholic Church that actually refer to them as saints, right? That it, like in their lit- liturgies and so forth. Um, so they didn't have sanctifying grace through the medium of the Catholic sacraments. They had it in an extraordinary way as a kind of a, you know immediate, spontaneous gift from God. Um, David writes about it. He talks about the grace of God when he says in Psalm 51, um, you know, against you and you only have I sinned and done what's evil in your sight. Therefore, wash me and I'll be clean and take not your Holy Spirit away from me. Right? He, there's a recognition of, of by David's part that he could lose the gift of God's Spirit that he needs to regain it through perfect contrition. Um, and, and that's that's the, the extraordinary means that the ancients had to acquire the grace of God. All right, and Connor, thanks so much for your call. Could not get to Rudolph in Baltimore. Uh, please call us back tomorrow, Rudolph. We will put you at the head of the line. Also, uh, Pierre checked in from the Netherlands uh, with a great question. We're going to save that for tomorrow's program as well. Dr. David Andrews, thank you, sir. Thank you, thank you. We do this program Monday through Friday right here on EWTN Radio. Check out our live broadcast weekdays at 2 p.m. Eastern. And again, the podcast available at EWTN.com forward slash radio. On behalf of our fantastic team, I'm Tom Price along with Dr. David Anders. Hey, thank you for joining us and we will see you tomorrow right here on the Wednesday edition of Call to Communion. Have a great day. God bless.